A spike in migrant crossings brings a state of emergency at one part of the Texas border. So in less than 24 hours, we got the soldiers here on the ground and executing a mission at the border, securing an illegal crossing site. The city's call for help and how the courts and Congress may respond. New questions about the delayed response to the mass shooting in Uvalde. This time, the focus is on medical teams, the failures that may have kept some victims from getting life-saving care. One lawmaker looks to take a hard line to protect teens and children online. We're on the cusp of really determining and, and figuring out that social media uh, has had dire results for our children. We'll look at what's behind a bill to ban Texas teens from social media. Produced from the Capitol in Austin and airing statewide, this is the award-winning State of Texas. Hello and thank you for joining us. I'm Monica Madden. I'm Ryan Chandler. Cities along the border are preparing for a new surge of migrant crossings as Title 42 restrictions could come to an end soon. Right now, Title 42 lets the federal government turn away many asylum seekers. It's a policy aimed at preventing the spread of communicable diseases and was instated during the COVID-19 pandemic. But even with that policy still in place, the number of asylum seekers in El Paso is already hitting a crisis level. Last weekend, that led El Paso's mayor to declare a state of emergency. And under that, El Paso city leaders called on the state for help with more resources including law enforcement and transportation to take those migrants to other cities. We ask for support in staffing, staffing for both feeding and housing of migrants and those needing shelter. The difficulty with outside of a declaration that we were, we were told is they couldn't provide services they weren't already funding until we had that declaration. And help came quickly to secure one spot where large groups of people were crossing illegally into El Paso. The state deployed Texas National Guard members on Tuesday and more than 400 soldiers arrived within 24 hours. Guard members set up razor wire to close off a gap in the border fence that had become a busy crossing point for migrants to wait across the Rio Grande. The move sealed off this location as an option for asylum seekers to reach immigration officials. Basically what we did is in a little less than 48 hours, we got over 400 soldiers on the ground, over 40 Humvees, um, and uh, the soldiers, of course, came with all of their weapons and everything that we need to execute this mission here. So as you can see here, basically, we've secured the border using the use of uh, Humvees, uh, concertina wire, um, and soldiers. Uh, basically, what we're doing here is we're basically just redirecting the migrants to the only legal port of entry. And these moves Tuesday come in anticipation of a surge of asylum seekers coming across when the court ordered end of Title 42 restrictions comes. Now that deadline was supposed to come last Wednesday, but then the Supreme Court stepped in. Chief Justice John Roberts granted a request by the group of Republican attorneys general who were asking to temporarily keep the restrictions in place. But as Anna Wernicke shows us, a request from the Biden administration is bringing more uncertainty over what comes next on the border. Migrants gathered at the U.S.-Mexico border on Tuesday waiting for the pandemic public health policy known as Title 42 to expire, only to find out they will have to wait a little longer. 
The Biden administration is asking the Supreme Court to reject Republicans' emergency bid to keep Title 42 in place, but also wants the court to grant more time to prepare for a transition. We dodged a bullet this week. North Carolina Republican Senator Tom Tillis says the extension request is proof the administration isn't prepared to handle the expected surge of migrants once the policy ends. They already have said that they can barely keep up. The administration insists they have a plan, but are also asking Congress for $3 billion to streamline the asylum process, hire more border agents, and improve surveillance along the border. But Oklahoma Republican James Langford says the money Congress has already approved isn't being put to good use. They've instead used those dollars for processing to speed up the, uh, the processing issues uh, that they had at the border so those thousands of people could move into the interior country faster to make room for thousands more to be able to come in. But New York Democrat Kirsten Gillibrand says the real solution is passing immigration reform. I think it's essential that we right-size immigration, which we've never done and we need to do now urgently. Anna Warnicke for State of Texas. The calls for immigration reform are coming from both Democrats and Republicans. Still, there's a big divide on what reform should look like. Congresswoman-elect Monica De La Cruz is the first Republican to represent the 15th district in South Texas. She says she wants to work on bipartisan solutions when she takes office next month. But at an event in McAllen, De La Cruz focused on Republican ideas for reform. First, we have to secure our borders. We've got to have the remain in Mexico policy back into place. We need to stop the catch and release program. And Title 42 needs to remain in place until we can get some of these legislative decisions made. Texas Senator John Cornyn also says he wants to work toward immigration reform, but at a news conference Wednesday, he highlighted the anger and skepticism felt by some Republicans over the administration's approach to immigration. So as somebody who would actually like to see us work on rational immigration reform, because as you've heard from all of us, we all believe legal immigration is a positive good for the country, it makes me angry that the Biden administration has poisoned the well by allowing this to happen, this humanitarian and public safety crisis. In response to the ongoing criticism, the White House is defending its immigration policies. And Press Secretary Karine Jean-Pierre touted the federal resources in place along the border now. DHS has deployed additional agents and uh, processing capabilities to El Paso, and 23,000 agents are working to secure the southern border. Let's not forget those 23,000 agents, is a, that is a historic number, uh, and that's because of the work that this president has done. And so that's the most ever that we've ever seen uh, doing this work. Republicans in Washington appear determined on making immigration a top issue in the next Congress, but it's still unclear how exactly they'll approach the issue. Of course, Republicans will take control of the House in early January, but there is still uncertainty about leadership, which will play a key part in determining policy choices. One lawmaker wants to ban kids from using apps like TikTok, Facebook, and Instagram. There are reasonable limitations that we put on uh, children to protect them. The reasons behind this plan to keep kids off social media and how it would work if it actually gets approved. Plus, ambulances and rescue helicopters delayed. The new questions about the medical response in Uvalde and the failures that may have cost lives.
Heading to the legislature this January is a bill that takes a hard line to protect teens and children online. If passed, it would ban Texans under the age of 18 from having access to social media. State Representative Jared Patterson filed the bill. He's a Republican from Frisco. And our Kelsey Thompson sat down with him to discuss the legislation. So to start off, Kelsey, what exactly is this bill proposing? Ryan, it's exactly what it sounds like. The bill calls for a total social media ban for those under the age of 18, including platforms like Instagram, Facebook, and TikTok. Patterson cited rising mental health concerns involving teenagers as one of the motivations behind this filing. In 1964, when the Surgeon General came out and really detailed the harms of cigarette use, um, I believe that's where we are in society today, that we are on the cusp of really determining and, and figuring out that social media uh, has had dire results for our children. He also noted concerns surrounding teens' ability to consent to these platforms, having access to their photos and videos, phone data, and locations. They access every image of video on your phone. They access your location data. Uh, they access keystrokes. Uh, you know, no child has the ability to consent to the data that they are sharing with these social media companies. This bill seems like a long shot to get to the floor, but if this measure were to get enough support to pass and be signed into law, how does Representative Patterson propose that the state enact the ban? So the bill proposes a two-photo verification system to ensure any users are actually 18 or older. The first is a photo of a state-issued driver's license that clearly displays the user's age. The second is a picture of both the user and the driver's license to verify they match the photo on the ID. As for how the state will regulate this if it passes, Patterson called on the Attorney General's office to monitor and respond to any possible violations. All right, Kelsey, thank you very much. Now, there is already a federal law in place that aims to protect children under the age of 13 online. The Children's Online Privacy Protection Act took effect in the year 2000 before smartphones and modern social media. The act bans companies from collecting personal information from children under 13 years old unless a parent gives consent. And even if they get consent, companies are limited to only collecting information reasonably necessary to provide their service. The law would basically ban anyone under 13 from social media, but that's not the reality. A survey released earlier this year found that 38% of children aged 8 to 12 years old have reported using social media. That poll was done by the nonprofit research group Common Sense Media. That group has been pushing this Congress to do more to protect the privacy of teens and preteens online, but they didn't quite get the results that they wanted. On Tuesday, the CEO of Common Sense released a statement voicing disappointment that Congress didn't add more online data privacy protections, saying, quote, Congress has failed to come to the aid of kids and teens. With just a few weeks to go before the start of the legislative session, advocates for medical marijuana are making a new case to Texas lawmakers. The steps they're taking now to expand access to people seeking treatment. New questions about the failed response to Robb Elementary, but this time the focus is on the medical teams. How a new report is revealing problems that may have cost some victims their lives. The town square in Uvalde has all the signs of holiday cheer, but still signs that something is missing. Instead of presents, 21 angel figurines sit under that tree to mark the 21 killed by a gunman in May. 
for many of those families still struggling with that loss. There's an ongoing fight for transparency and accountability. Now a new report is raising questions about the delayed response to the mass shooting at Uvalde's Robb Elementary, but this time the focus is on problems that might have prevented some victims from getting life-saving care. Joining us now for Inside is Zach Despard, a politics reporter for the Texas Tribune. Thanks for being here with us today, Zach. We've largely heard about, you know, the failed law enforcement response in this shooting in the months following, but tell us about what your reporting has revealed about the failed medical response and how that tied together with the failed law enforcement response in getting to Robb Elementary. Sure. A lot of the reporting to date has been about that failed police response, which is a really important area of inquiry. But what we wanted to look at is how that police response affected the ability for medics to quickly treat and effectively treat victims of the shooting. What we found out from talking with law enforcement and medical experts is we already know that the police really failed to take charge of the incidents and coordinate that response. They also did not effectively coordinate with medics. So what that meant, first and foremost, that huge delay, that 75 minutes where they did not confront the gunman and ultimately end that shooting, that was a lot of time when victims uh, were in trouble, were wounded, but did not get care. So that lost hour for medics really made it hard for them to do their jobs. And beyond that, during that delay, despite waiting, Police did not effectively communicate what was going on to medics, so they did not know how to appropriately stage ambulances to stage helicopters. And what that meant was, when the shooting was finally over, there were only two ambulances right outside the school. The helicopters weren't ready to immediately come in, and that resulted in additional delays for the more than 10 victims who were alive at that time but needed to get to a hospital. What else are the experts saying about this? Do we believe that if it weren't for these failures that those three victims could have survived? So in our story, we talk about uh, three victims who were alive at the time the shooting ended, but died before they got to a mm. trauma surgeon. And it's really hard to know whether they would have survived uh, in other circumstances, because we don't have the autopsies, and that's going to be the best record of that. We do know, looking at the records, talking to experts, that their chances of survival would have been a lot greater had there not been a delay in getting to them, had there been a more efficient way of getting them to the hospital. Your reporting also noted some of the personal stories of Ava Morellas, the teacher who had been shielding her students and bleeding out there. You know, what kind of what kind of details can you share with us that you've learned from what was unfolding in that in that classroom after they got shot? Mm -hmm. uh, the account of teacher Ava Morellas is an important one because uh, she had had called her husband, the uh, Uvalde CISD police officer, during the shooting to let him know that she had been shot, and that was one of the early indications that. Police definitely should have known that there were wounded victims inside those classrooms because she had reported that herself had been shot. Um, we talked, uh, listened to the, some of the interviews with some of the students from that room, uh, noting that uh, you know she did what she could to try to stop the bleeding on herself. She was still alive and conscious when she was taken out of the classroom, and unfortunately, she didn't make it. And that's one of the, the hardest stories uh, mm. of this because one of the experts we talked to, this, the strongest indication we have is, is this person believed, this uh, trauma surgeon from Washington, that she, because she had survived for an hour, the chances that she could have survived those wounds were significantly larger uh, because of all that time. Mm. Of course, Uvalde is one of the biggest failures to date of mass school shootings, but your report noted that since Columbine in 1999, a lot of other mass shootings have had similar 
repeated failures. So what's the key takeaway from this? Yeah, and this is one of the more important parts because uh, that's why we want to keep doing this reporting about Uvalde is what lessons haven't we learned about previous mass shootings that we really should be applying when sadly these things do happen in the future. Repeatedly, when talking with experts about mass shootings, about mass casualty events, they had said police, fire, and EMS do not do a good job of coordinating together. There is this idea that um, police will handle a scene, medics will wait, and then when the scene is clear, the medics will go in. That doesn't always work in mass shootings, especially when victims need care so much more quickly. So the experts we talked to said, look, people need to learn lessons from this. They really need to have some reforms uh, because this model is not working. And Zach, we're going to have the opportunity to respond to this reporting with policy in just a few weeks when lawmakers return to the Capitol. Have you heard any reaction from uh, state representatives or senators about how we can prevent this from ever happening in the future? So I had, we have been in touch with the uh, House Special Committee that produced that report back mm -hmm. in July, a comprehensive report. It was very helpful for our own reporting, uh, who said that they, they appreciated uh, the depths that we went to to sort of capture the, the nuance of this. Hopefully, the totality of all this reporting is helpful to lawmakers when they convene next month and really decide what are the things that Texas needs to do to lessen the likelihood of these things happening in the future. All right, Zach Despar from the Texas Tribune, thanks so much for joining us. And thank, thank you. you for your reporting. Thank you, guys. And a legislative group formed in the wake of the Robb Elementary School shooting in Uvalde just released a list of what the state should do to protect students from school shootings. The Texas Senate's Special Committee to Protect All Texans is recommending a new requirement for all law enforcement officers to have active shooter training. It also calls for new investments into school district security budgets and mental health care programs. But notably, the committee did not recommend Texas raise the age to purchase assault weapons from 18 to 21. That has been one of the main policy changes that families of the victims have demanded. The full legislature will consider all of these recommendations once the session begins on January 10th. Medical marijuana is available for some patients in Texas, but some advocates say that's not enough. Legislation and the laws are already there. We just need more access to what's been approved. Why they're pushing lawmakers to expand access in the coming session. With just a few weeks to go before the start of the legislative session, advocates are making their case for Texas to expand access to medical marijuana. But few people believe those efforts will get enough support from lawmakers. That's why some advocates for now are putting their focus on improving the state's current program, including a veteran fighting for more access. It's greatly improved my life. Air Force vet Jeff Young knows the benefits of medical cannabis. To treat anxiety, PTSD, and mild autism. But he says accessing it is not easy in Texas. This is the only state with no formal large-scale access. The legislation and the laws are already there. We just need more access to what's been approved. The Compassionate Use Program, also known as Teacup, falls under the Department of Public Safety. Young says right now it isn't meeting the demand of Texas patients. PS so that they could issue those licenses at any time, increase competition, lower the cost burden on the patients, and increase supply to the market. So, At a recent DPS commission meeting, leaders say they're opening up applications for more licensees in mid-January. Be our intent to act immediately on those applications since that would put us square in the middle of the legislative session. There are people already waiting weeks, if not months, to get their medication. At the start of 2021, Texas had about 4,000 users and 263 approved physicians.
physicians who could prescribe it. Both of those numbers have grown. As of October this year, nearly 39,000 patients and 643 doctors. Let the legislative session at least begin and see um, what momentum there may be as far as various bills before we bring forth any. But Young worries as long as teacup doesn't meet current demand, Texans will look elsewhere for medical cannabis. It comes down to accepting that it's already here. The bottom line is it feeds the black market. This November, voters in at least five Texas cities approved ballot measures to decriminalize marijuana. Those votes happened in Denton, Colleen, Harker Heights, Elgin, and San Marcos. The measures aim to prohibit arrests and citations for carrying less than four ounces of marijuana. But that's still illegal under state law. And but those votes reflect general support for loosening marijuana laws in Texas. A new poll from the Texas Politics Project at the University of Texas asked voters whether they thought marijuana should be legal or not. 17% said marijuana should not be legal under any circumstance, but 28% said it should be legal for medical purposes. Even more, 32% supported making it legal to possess small amounts of marijuana for any purpose. 23% saying possessing any amount of pot should be legal. Interestingly, though, the poll shows that support for legalization is down slightly from just over a year ago. The Texas Politics Project has been polling this question regularly for more than 10 years. The last time they did it was back in June of 2021. Back then, 13% said marijuana should not be legal at all. Compare that to 17% this December. And in 2021, 29% said possession of any amount of marijuana should be legal. That number dropped to 23% in the latest poll. Thank you again for joining us for State of Texas on this holiday. I'm Monica Madden. I'm Ryan Chandler. We'll be back next week to bring you an in-depth look at Texas politics.